This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. This past week, the Wall Street Journal ran an opinion piece that pointed out that deaths from COVID among children under the age of 15 are actually lower than deaths from influenza during the 2019-20 influenza epidemic. Not that it was called an epidemic, but that was the, the flu season. So why are schools closing their doors in the face of the COVID pandemic when they didn't close their schools because the influenza rate was pretty serious? Is that leaving our children without the educational opportunity they need to live successful lives in the years to come? And this is a serious issue, which uh, I think is getting more and more attention as we get deeper and deeper into this pandemic. And I have with me today one of the authors of this opinion piece, uh, Ryan Sullivan, who is an associate professor of economics at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. And uh, he's been taking a close look at the economics of, of this pandemic. And uh, I am very, very pleased that he's uh, have been willing to join me on the Education Exchange. So Ryan, thank you for uh, appearing on the Education Exchange. Oh, no, thanks thanks for having me, Paul. <laughs> well, Ryan, uh, you report that a recent study at Brown University has found that the COVID case rate among students is about one-tenth of one percent among those tested, and about one-fifth of one percent among the staff at the school. Now, that's less than a tenth as much as the 2.6% for the U.S. population as a whole. I think I have those figures right. Correct me if I'm wrong. Those, those numbers are accurate. Yes. So why do you think the COVID case rate is so low for students and teachers and other staff at our schools? Well, there, there are a number of things going on here, Paul. So probably like a lot of us in, in this profession, we, we've been tracking uh, you know, the data. We've, we've been watching the literature out of other countries uh, and, you know, the U.S. says, you know, we basically had our school shut down this whole time and we're, st we're starting to see them opening up in, in some areas. Uh, the early studies that were coming out from, from other countries uh, were very promising. They, they weren't showing a lot of transmissions in the schools. Uh, they, you know, we, if you look at the YMCA camps over the summer in the U.S., we don't have a lot of data on the U.S. That's why this... Emily's data is so important, but you know, the YMCA summer camps, we, we, we didn't really see transmissions there. Uh, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, but it's quite clear in the data. We just, we're not seeing the transmission rates in the schools that a lot of people were really wor worried about. I don't know why that is. It's, it's, it's somewhat unclear, but it looks like kids for whatever reason, they just don't transmit this virus at, at the rates that older people do. Well, could it be that they're doing a lot of testing of kids and a lot of testing of teachers and school personnel and whether or not they have any symptoms or not, and therefore you get a lower case rate just because it, you're testing lots of people who are very unlikely to be uh, infected. And then for the U.S. population as a whole, people get tested when they feel sick, so you're going to get a higher rate there. Could that be some of this? That, that could be. I, you know, I, I think testing is, is very important. You know, we also have, if, if you look at my risk analysis study that was published earlier this summer, you know, there's a lot of asymptomatic cases floating around here too. So if you look at the U.S. population, 
40% of the population are, are, are of the COVID cases are asymptomatic. Okay. That's a lot of cases. Uh, and kids, uh, it looks like, you know, they, they have very, they, if, if you look at hospitalizations and symptoms and that kind of thing, they, they don't have those rates like other individuals do that are, that are older. So if, if kids you, you have, they're not as serious in terms of the symptoms, a lot more are, are asymptomatic. We find that those cases aren't transmitted as much in comparison to the more serious cases in society. So, so if you're that, asymptomatic, you don't transmit, you don't. You can still, you can still transmit it, but it's, it's not as likely as it gets transmitted from my understanding of the literature. So if, if it's, if you're, you know, if you're a severe case, coughing a lot, you, you have, you know, the aches and pains, you got the lung, you know, in comparison to an asymptomatic person, that person that has all of those, those symptoms is much more likely to transmit it from my understanding. So now you pointed out that only 74 children under the age of 15 have died in the United States from the coronavirus uh, since the pandemic began. Uh, how confident are you of these figures? I know you didn't put that together, but those were pulled directly off of the the CDC data website. So there, there's also some literature out there that looks at excess deaths. So you know it's possible that we have other deaths taking place that you know aren't categorized as COVID. But I mean, just just looking at the numbers, Paul, you you've probably seen these the distribution on this. There is a clear case that that children are just not dying at the rates that the elderly are. And whatever that number is, you know, we have 74 in the CDC data. We've seen this play out in other countries. We've seen it play out in the CDC data. It would be highly unlikely that that kids are dying at the same rate as, as the normal population. Uh, how about the, the school employees? Some people say, okay, fine. But the, you, the teachers are being put at risk. Uh, other people working in the schools, uh, the so we so forth are being placed at risk. Yes, yeah, so they are they are being placed at risk. So anytime you you go into a group type setting, that that's one reason why I think it's important to you know have a classroom where it's it's blockaded off. You're not mixing a lot of kids and not mixing the different teachers and that kind of thing. Where you know the teachers go in for their their lunch break and they're mingling. And so if we can cut a lot of that out, you can mitigate a lot of the transmissions. Now. We don't have fatality data for teachers, at least that I'm aware of. I haven't seen anything out there on that in the US. We do have data from other countries. I, I linked in the, the article about Sweden. So in Sweden, what they were finding, they, they track a lot of these deaths in terms of, I think they're like Bureau of Labor Statistics. I don't, I don't know what you call it, but in, in terms of the data that they've tracked, they're finding that, that teachers if, if you look at a comparison into a, in comparison to other occupations that aren't at risk, there's no difference. So if, if you look at, if you look at the, the data in Sweden, they're finding that the teacher fatality rate, it's, it's the same thing as an IT technician. And so it, it, it looks very promising. You know, we, we have the, the lower case levels it's looking like from Auster's data. And we also have data from, you know, other countries in the YMCA camps. So this new data is really telling the first story of what's going on since we've opened. So we have low cases. We have uh, very low fatality rates between 
at least teachers in other countries, we'll, we'll soon know in this country, we have low, or low fatality rates for children. And then we have, in terms of the hospitalizations, that's another thing. So in, in my piece that's with Tom Kniezner that's coming out in the journal Risk and Uncertainty. Yeah, actually. and that piece is very interesting, Ryan, because you say uh, that hospitalizations really should be what we are looking at as much as fatalities. Of course, fatalities are, are, are something that is very important to look at, but hospitalizations can be really significant because uh, somebody's being, you're not hospitalized unless you've got a very serious problem. That's, that's exactly correct. And, and with the children, we see hospitalizations are, are very low as well. So out of all the hospitalizations that we have, now our data was tracking up through, I think the first or the end of May. So it's, it's a little bit dated, but this is probably gonna track pretty, pretty close. We were finding that only 1.2% of the hospitalizations were, were taking place with the children when you look at 19 and less. And so you, you add all these things up, Paul, you, we, have, we have low case rates, in the schools with with teachers and kids we have low numbers of hospitalizations and then we have the low fatalities and so the only the only real argument that that someone could make is if this stuff would get out into the general public and it, it would infect you know grandmas and grandpas and that kind of thing uh, that's well, the really places, only argument. you know you know we can start testing that because some places are opening the schools i think florida is opening the schools um, uh, you know, Los Angeles is definitely not, uh, uh, Boston's not, uh, or they did now they're closing it. So there's a lot of variation across the country and, and, and school closing policies. Has anybody been able yet to look at whether or not there's any connection between those policies and the more general spread? Yeah. So there, there has been some work on that. So. In the U.S., unfortunately, you know, we, we just started opening up, so I, I am unaware of any study that's looked at that geographic variation. I am almost positive people are going to be coming out with studies even within the next month or so on something like that. We do have studies in other countries that have looked at that. So uh, I linked in the study from Germany. It was, a new, it was an IZA study. They, they just weren't finding that it was spreading to the general population. Uh, now... I, it's not that there's a zero risk for for transmission. There, well, it, says no, so. it says so in the Wall Street Journal. It says in-person classes turn out not to cause spikes in cases or fatality, and that's quoting your study. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there was. So I'm sure you, you've written lots of op-eds, Paul. So we we actually, you know, you write up the article, and then the editor gets to decide the the headlines and how they want to how they want to frame it. And we, we actually, if you read the article, we actually never say that. What we're saying is that the risks are minimal, okay? It's not that there's zero. There, there are always gonna be some risk out there for this kind of stuff. Uh, I, I would also say uh, the, the risk for elementary kids is extremely small in terms of transmitting this. What we've seen in the studies out there that have found some of these isolated incidents where they, they transmit it to the general population it's, it's almost always high schools, okay? So when we had the outbreak in Israel, there was an outbreak in Israel, that was coming from the high schools, okay? We also had uh, in, in the United States, early on when we opened the schools, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a high school in Georgia that opened up and there were all these 
pictures of these high school kids without wearing masks and they, they found an outbreak in, in that high school. So you are gonna have some periodic outbreaks, particularly in some of the high schools. I still think that risk is low. We, we see very little risk with elementary schools though. Okay, so the risk would be with, with the high schools, but even that is pretty low. Those are, those are isolated events. And Oster's data that she shows is when you average these across many, many school districts, we're just, we're just not seeing them. But when they do have these outbreaks, are these outbreaks uh, mainly uh, asymptomatic uh, or, or you wouldn't even notice them if you weren't doing a lot of testing? If, if you're not doing a lot of testing, it can be a problem because you can have some of the asymptomatic cases that can transfer over, okay? Now, like I said, those, those, those transmissions, they're not as gonna be as bad as the people that are, that are highly symptomatic, but you can still transmit it, okay? So that, that could cause a problem. I, I think one of, one of the things that, you know, we're, we're, one of the things that we could do in this country better still is, is testing. So, you know, for example, my, my mom just came down with COVID this past month and she, she had some, some symptoms. She went and got tested and, uh, you know, she, luckily she recovered, didn't have to go to the hospital or anything like that. But my, my brother and my, my father, who live with her couldn't get tested because they they were only testing symptomatic people and, and they were in Wisconsin and so you know how Wisconsin is right now but even even still right now we have issues with testing and that, that's something that we could really help out with if you can isolate these incidents in the school you can find out who who actually has it you can you can isolate those and, and you can protect the rest of the individuals so I think testing is a big thing Paul like you brought up well so um Let's talk about the costs. Uh, I know you've worked a lot on the, the, the costs and, and you've brought in that it's not just fatalities that are costly, it's also hospitalizations, which may be equally. What's your estimated cost of the uh, pandemic in the United States thus far? So the, 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 the paper that I have with, with Tom Kniesner that that's coming out this month that I briefly discussed earlier, we were backing out something on the order of about $2.2 trillion in the non-fatal valuations. Okay. That's a big number. And that, that was, that was up through the end of, of July. So those numbers are only increasing. Okay. Now in terms of on a per case valuation, we were backing out roughly about $46,000 per case. Okay. So no, how do you get forty-six thousand? That's about two thirds of uh, a wage earner's average wage over the course of a year. Or... Yeah, so we're finding that these values are really high, and you know we we got some flack for this. <laughs> we got we got kind of grouped into. Do you remember the the Sturgis paper that that came out a while back that had a lot of publicity, and they were backing out some numbers in terms of you know, how much money it costs. And that well, some of the articles were. Our, our value was actually used, those authors used our value to back out what the cases cost. Okay, so our $46,000 per case estimate uh, is a weighted average. So we have some, some really mild cases. Uh, though, those were estimated at just under $11,000. That's a point zero zero one of the, the, value of the value of a per statistical life. And those numbers rise all the way up to about $2.9 million per case if the person is on a mechanical ventilator. 
Okay. Now, the way we got those values is the Department of Transportation has different severity tiers. So they are the only organization that, I'm, that I am aware of that actually does this in terms of the agencies in the federal government, where we have different agencies like the Department of Transportation, uh, the, the EPA, uh, HHS, they, they have values on lives, which I'll talk about probably later on here when we get into the cost benefit numbers. But the Department of Transportation, are, that's the only organization that has values for injuries. And so what we did is they have these different classifications. So the classifications, they have a minor classification, uh, a moderate classification, a serious classification, and a severe classification. Okay. So the really low mild cases, we were pricing out at about $10,900. And then you go all the way up to the $2.9 million. And you're going to have a whole bunch of different categories, you know, asymptomatic cases, symptomatic cases that don't have hospitalizations, they're going to be valued lower. And then once you go up, uh, you know, we're looking at about a million hospitalizations right now when we backed out the numbers. And well, so, so what I, what I want to do though is compare that uh, couple trillion that you came up with initially. And I see how you're getting there from this and it all makes sense to me, but What's, what are the policies that are, you know, the economy is slowing down dramatically, uh, uh, quite intentionally in order to keep people from uh, spreading it. So what's the, what's, what's, what's the, uh, what's the trade-off? I mean, how much are we paying to save, you know, uh, some, some lives or some hospitalizations? Correct. So the way economists do this, you know, it's a, it's a standard cost-benefit analysis. We, we have very specific methods that we use to back those numbers out. So my specialty is, is valuing lives or, or cases in this example. So what we do is we look at the net benefits, and net benefits would be equal to the value of the statistical life, which is normally for the, the normal population, it's about $10 million per statistical, per statistical life. We take that, we multiply it, by the number of lives saved for say shutting down the economy or the schools. And then you subtract out whatever your GDP loss is because of that. Okay. So if you can save more money in terms of the lives saved in comparison to your GDP loss, economists would say that passes uh, a cost benefit test. The net benefits are positive. And so we should shut down the economy or we should shut down the schools. Okay. Now what we are finding on the schools is that the benefits from shutting them down are not even close in terms of, of the losses that we would have. Okay, so uh, in, in, my, in the, the article, we had quoted a McKinsey and Company report that we're backing out losses of about $61,000 to $82,000 in lifetime earnings for an average student by shutting down the schools. And for how long? That was just through January of 2021. Now that's, that's an average student, okay? That's on a per student basis. If we look at aggregate totals, we're looking at about $2.5 trillion here, Paul, okay? Now, that's, if, and that's for a four month shutdown of the schools. And there, there, I know you've had other guests on, like Eric Hanyashek, he, he has some really large numbers that you guys talked about on a previous podcast. Whatever study you look at, these numbers are huge. Okay, and so that, that $2.5 trillion study that I just quoted, if you take that $2.5 trillion and you use value of statistical life estimates to figure out what the break even point is and if this makes sense, 
for a standard $10 million valuation, you'd have to save 250,000 lives. There's no way we're saving 250,000 lives by, by shutting down these schools. And, that's, and that is with a standard valuation. If you adjust the, the VSL, the value per statistical life by age, that number skyrockets. So you're looking at, if you adjust by age, our risk analysis piece was saying the value is gonna be 4.5 million because people don't have, have as many years to live that are dying from this. If that's the case, the numbers are gonna be bumped up even more. I mean, we're looking at a half million people we would probably have to save in order to justify shutting down the schools. And I just don't see it. Well, that's what people were talking about initially. When, when the COVID pandemic first began, people were talking about 2 million people are gonna die in the United States. There was this Cambridge study or Oxford study, it came out of England somewhere, which, which came up with this, this number. I, that's the number that supposedly frightened the president of the United States and got him to agree to uh, do a, a shutdown of a lot of the economy. Paul, that, that's exactly correct. So that, that was a, a study out of England. It was, it was Ferguson et al. They were saying this thing was going to kill 2.2 million people. Well, come to find out, the guy had all kinds of coding mistakes. And, you, and if you read the thing, there, there's all kinds of assumptions that go into that. The number was wildly off. We're just, we're not gonna get to that, that kind of number. And, and with the schools, it's even worse because the school shutdown, we're, we're talking about little kids here. We're just, you're not gonna see those kind of fatalities that, that we would have to save to justify shutting down these schools. I just don't see it. So why are we shutting down the schools then? If it doesn't make, it doesn't even come close to making economic sense. It's, it's not, it's not even in the ballpark is the thing. It's not even in the ballpark. The, so think about what's going on here. I, I think this is a really critical point. We, we didn't bring this up in the op-ed, but I, I think this is really important. And by the way, I, I have two little kids. So that, that's partly why I get so worked up about this stuff. I got a, I got a kindergartner and a first grader. Okay. So this is really impacting us. So what, what is going on here is we are taking statistical life years from our children and we are handing them off to the elderly, okay? Because what we, see, what we see in the literature is that if you're losing out on human capital development, if you're losing out on income, what ends up happening? Your lifespans go down. Your life expectancy rates go down. And so we're, we're taking those life years from our kids and we're handing them off to the elderly population of this country. And I just, I just think that is morally wrong to me. Yeah, I, but the, I don't the think elderly right. vote and those kids don't. <laughs> that, is, that, that is correct. I, I would also add, there's, there's a whole bunch of, so all of these studies are based off of like, you know, lost incomes in the future, human capital development. But there, there, are, there are simple things that we, we don't monetize as, as economists. So my little daughter, she, she's in kindergarten. She, she's going to miss out on her her christmas play this year that's something she's never going to get back you know my my son did that last year and I, I it was one of the cutest things that i, I think i've ever seen in my life but those, those are moments that we're never going to get back no i quite agree you know um i have a grandson who really suffered uh last spring when the school shut down and when they didn't were it became clear they weren't going to open again uh, the parents shifted them to uh, a private school, which is open. And it, it, 
was transformative for this little boy. He oh, needs to go to school. Yeah, there's tons of su substitution and effects going on here. And he can't be the here. only one out there. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's you know you got to remember, Paul. A lot a lot of people can't afford private school. Where where I live, we just don't have the private schools. Uh, the, the county official has, has shut all them down. There's, a, there's only a couple that he allowed to open. And so I tried to take my kid to a private school here, just up the road. They don't have any room. And, and so, you know, some, some of the wealthier families are able to do that. Some, some places they're just not available. You know, when, when you look at what's going on, there's these huge substitution effects going on in society. So, you know, I linked another study in, in, in that op-ed, 50 million Americans are dealing with childcare issues right now. That's that's a lot. That's a lot of people that are, that the school shutdowns are, are impacting. And then on top you're of pointing that, out that, you point out that women are uh, have left the labor force at a higher rate than men have, which suggests there's something going on here that that the women are being called home to take care of the family. Yeah, I mean, you you always get into you always got to watch yourself when you when you talk about differences across the genders. But you know, my, my wife and I talk about this, how females are, are often, for better or for worse, they're, they're the more caring sex. Uh, I'll say my wife said that, not me, so I don't, I don't get in trouble. But you know, we're, the numbers that we had, you know, we looked at the, the labor numbers coming out, it was 865,000 fewer women, this was just in September, by the way, over age 19 left the workforce. Now compare that, how many left for men? 216,000. Same age group, same time period. I, it has to be plain. I don't know how many of those are, are due to this, Paul, but I know a, a lot of anecdotal evidence. I, I know a lot of people where, you know, the moms are either A, just leaving the workforce to, to help out with this, or B, they're, they're reducing their hours. That was another study out of the IZA uh, they were finding that people are, are reducing their work hours. So this is this is having a huge impact on kids. It's having a huge impact on parents. And we're we're not going to turn this economy around until we get the schools right. And you're sort of saying that the childcare programs that were in existence and have been unable to survive or have been shut down or nobody wants to use that those programs the risks are minimal because this is the very youngest kids. We, we are just, you're not seeing the transmission rates. I just don't see it. We, we've had study after study and I keep, I keep hearing these people that say, well, we got to wait to see what data come in. The data are in. The data are in. It's not happening. How, how long do we got to keep the school shut down? How long, how long do we got to keep hurting our kids? I, I just, I'm not seeing it. And then on top of it, we, we shut down the schools. And if you're a family like me, you know, I'm taking my kids to the YMCA. So I, I teach them in the mornings. No, today's a little different because I'm on, on with you, Paul. And then I take them to the YMCA. So you're, all you're doing is you're, you're taking the risk off of the teachers and you place it on the YMCA workers. What, like, what are you winning there? Listen, this is a fascinating uh, conversation, Ryan. Uh, I, I wish we could keep on because it's really, really important, uh, but uh, I appreciate your sharing your time with me uh, this morning. Thank you very much for joining me on the Education Exchange. Paul, that was great. Th thanks a lot for your time. I've been speaking with Ryan Sullivan, Associate Professor of Economics at the Naval Postgraduate School, Monterey, California.
who has uh, been tracking the economics of the pandemic. Uh, I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern time.